This week I was scheduled to keep going in Nehemiah, and uh, honestly, I just it was a busy week and a crazy week, and I went to sit down later in the week than I normally would to, to look at Nehemiah, and just really felt like I was done with it. Felt like I had said what God had to say about it, and I wanted to say, I uh, felt called to say a little something else. And so uh, today, I want to talk about worship space. Worship space and how the space around us contributes to our worship of God. Um, I think we miss this. We don't talk about this, and I've talked about little pieces of it in children's sermons, but never really just described and developed for our congregation uh, an understanding of the space that we're in and all the things around us when we're in worship um, that can help us draw closer to God. Early on in Christian history, Spike, you may have to quit for me. There we go. In the Old Testament, when God would uh, speak to his people, he would sometimes come down in special ways for special moments. So when Abraham is called on to sacrifice Isaac, and then God comes and leaves a ram instead, Abraham builds an altar. Uh, when Jacob wrestles with God, he builds an altar. And there are these places in the early history of Israel where they build an altar and say, here's a special place where God was, where God showed up, and we're going to worship there in a special way. The challenge is that God doesn't stay in that place. That was a special place for Abraham where God did something That is a special place where uh, Jacob wrestles with God, and there are plenty of other examples of this. They're normally on hills, because hills were supposed to be holy places where you go up to be closer to God in heaven. Uh, But God doesn't stay in that place in a special way. So you have this idea of an altar very, very early on in many ways throughout the beginning of Genesis. This all changes when God brings the people out of Egypt. Uh, Spike, you got to click for me. Okay, let me read for you Exodus 25. So this is right after the people have come out, right after they've received the Ten Commandments. Exodus 25 says this. The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the people of Israel that they take for me a contribution from every man whose heart moves him. You shall receive a contribution from me. And this is the contribution you shall receive from them. Gold, silver, and bronze, blue and purple and scarlet yarns, and fine, fine twine linen, goat's hair, tan ram skins, goat skins, acacia wood, uh, acacia wood, sorry, oil for lamps, spices for the anointing oil and for fragrant incense, onyx stones and stones for setting, for the ephod and for the breastplate. And let them make me a sanctuary, that I may dwell in their midst, exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle. And for all its furniture, so you shall make it. See, the people of Israel have basically not been a people. They've basically been a family. But when they're in Egypt, they grow. And they really become more than just a family. Now they're becoming a nation. But they're a nation that's been in slavery. They're a nation that's been trapped in Egypt. So when they go out, God calls upon Moses to say, okay, we need to develop these people. 
We need to develop the cult, and, and that's a negative word right now, but it just means religious system. Okay, we need uh, a way of worshiping. We need rules of behavior. We need festivals and we need sacrifices. And we need a worship space. Why do we need a worship space? Because there's going to be a special way in which God's presence is going to be there. What did that text say? That I may dwell in their midst. No more is it just going to be God come down, God go back. God comes down, God go back. For the people of Israel, there's going to be this special way in which God is going to be present, dwelling in their midst. This was visible to them, in fact. As Israel went through the desert, when they were supposed to move, they were led by a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. And so when the cloud or when the fire would raise, they knew they were supposed to pack up all the tents and it was time to go on to a new location. And when the pillar stopped, they knew that's the new place where they were going to camp for a certain time. Okay, the first thing they did when they went to set up camp is, built, is put up their tabernacle, the center of which is this, the Ark of the Covenant. Uh, most of us know it from an Indiana Jones movie. Uh, it's this lost relic now of history. It's called the mercy seat. It was understood to be the foot place of God in the world, this special representation of God being in their midst. In fact, it was a holy object. You weren't supposed to touch it. There were these rings on the outside so that these poles could be set in place so people could carry it without touching it at all. Spike, click for me. The the, uh, Ark of the Covenant was kept in the tabernacle. Tabernacle was fundamentally a portable worship space. It was a worship tent. Okay, It's really the first temple or the first church. Um, It had a a tent around the outside. It couldn't hold that many people. So you would have to just go in when it was your turn to sacrifice. Um, You can see the tent. You can see the the double set of doors or entryways on the tent to the out to the uh, would have been set out to the east normally here. There were two things in the courtyard. One was an altar where they could do sacrifices, either animal sacrifices or burnt offerings. The other, you can't see real well, there's a washing pool. Okay, that's because in certain instances, if you were unclean, you were supposed to be able to come and wash yourself. Inside, there's this sort of tent structure, right? And inside of that, only the priests could go. And it had a couple different areas. One was called the holy area. That's what you came to when you first came in. In that holy area were two tables. Uh, On one table, there would be 12 cakes or 12 bread loaves called the bread of presence. And uh, those every so often would have to be uh, um, taken down and taken out and new bread placed in their midst. On the other was a, uh, uh, a lampstand uh, in Jewish culture called a menorah. It had one main branch and then three uh, candles on each side. And then where the candles come out is supposed to look like a flower. Um, also in that area was what's, what, what, what we don't use anymore called an incense altar, where you were constantly burning a sweet aroma to God in that place. There was a giant curtain, and uh, you can see that curtain kind of cut away, curtain of one piece that then held the Holy of Holies. And in the Holy of Holies is where the Ark of the Covenant would go. And when the people stopped and when everything got set up, that is where the pillar of smoke or the pillar of fire, depending on the time of day, would go in and rest in that place. 
Okay, everybody see the tabernacle? This was the Jewish worship space for 40 years in the desert, for conquering the land, for the whole time of the judges, and even the beginning of the kings. And King David was frustrated by this. King David himself established this great town, really defensible town on a hill called Jerusalem. He put up his own um, royal court, his own mansion there. And yet he always felt like God was living in a tent when he had a mansion. But God would not let David build the temple because David was a warrior king and had blood on his hands. It would fall to his son Solomon to build the temple. All right. There's Solomon's temple right there. Okay, Solomon amassed a large amount of money. Uh, and so he was able to build a temple. And when he did, he went all out. Gold, laden, everything. It was this very tall structure. Um, you can see on the left the altar with the burning. You can see uh, the large pool uh, with the, the golden calves underneath of it uh, for washing. And some smaller pools also outside. Inside, the, uh, inside, it looked very much similar to what the tabernacle looked like, just grander and larger. There was a holy area and a holy of holies. Only the priest went into those areas. And the priest only went into the holy of holies, only went into where the Ark of the Covenant was uh, once a year. Uh, they, they weren't moving it all the time, so that's what they did. Um, you just get more grandeur, but here's the other thing that happens when you get to Solomon's temple, is you get more division. Uh, not only is it a small space, so only so many people can get in, but only so many people are allowed in. So the men are allowed in the central area, women are allowed in the secondary area, Gentiles are kept to the outside of this area. And then there are all kinds of little courts, little areas where uh, people could go if they had leprosy, people could go for different needs. But there wasn't a lot of mixing. It was this place of separation. Still, the temple was a great symbol of faith. It was God's established place in the middle of the people. In fact, if you go in, the, in your Bible and look in the Psalms, starting in Psalm 120, and you go back to, I think it's about 130. You're going to find all those psalms are called psalms or songs of ascent. And they are psalms that were sung on your way to the temple. Anytime you went to the temple, you were singing. Let me read just a little bit of uh, Psalm 120. Or I'm, I don't have which one it was. But let me just read a little bit of a psalm of ascent. I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Our feet have been standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. Jerusalem built as a city that is bound firmly together, to which the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord. The thrones of judgment were set, the thrones of the house of David. Pray for peace, Jerusalem. May they be secure who love you. So there were these songs you would sing. And you, as you would go up to the top of the little hill that Jerusalem's on, and then on the top of that hill you would go up to the temple. This temple was destroyed by the Babylonians when they took the people off into exile. And so this temple totally gets wiped out. And when I mean wiped out, I mean wiped out. It is torn and ripped apart and burned. It is gone. It is made into rubble. And it's left that way for the 70 years there in exile until they come back and Ezra builds a temple. Okay? 
uh, Ezra builds a temple uh, similar to Solomon's temple, although it's a, with its own design. But it's much more simple because the people don't have a lot of money and a lot of gold at this point. They've been in exile. They've been in other places. During the time of Jesus, Herod takes this temple and does a lot of work on it. Herod's got money from the Romans. And so he builds with all the gold and all this. And in the time of Jesus, this is a big deal because um, the people want the temple to be grand but they don't want a ruler, a Roman oppressor building it, right? It's it's blasphemous to think that Herod would build the temple, but at the same time, um, he's making it beautiful. And so they struggle with this. And some Jews are on board and some Jews are not on board. And then some of the business practices that are happening in the temple, already remember Jesus turning over the table in this same temple. When we get to the New Testament, we do see some interesting things about the tabernacle or the temple. First, let me read this from John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God and the Word was God. Verse 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Listen, that Word dwells. The Word dwelt among us is the Greek word that the Greek Old Testament used for tabernacle. What that word really says is that Jesus came and tabernacled among us. John is intentionally using this word to let us know that you know how in the Old Testament God brought and had his presence in the midst of the people? Jesus coming does that same thing. He, he, he is uh, dwelling, he's tabernacling among us. We remember Jesus' struggle with the temple, that he teaches there, that he's constantly going there, but he also overturns the money changer's table. There is an amazing text that we don't often think about in Matthew chapter 27. Jesus is on the cross, and here's what it says. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook. And the rocks were split. So that, that curtain that separates the holies from the holy of holies, that only the priest could go in once a year, that temple gets torn. And all of a sudden, we've got major chaos in the Jewish faith because now there's this, there was this separation from God we have to have. But all of a sudden, when Jesus dies, boom, that is ripped and we have access to God. The book of Acts. Uh, go ahead and switch to the next one, Spike. In the book of Acts, we have this moment where everyone is, is uh, described as having tongues of fire come upon them. Tongues of fire. It's kind of a weird description. and We don't know what a tongue of fire really looks like. But it harkens back to this pillar of fire for Israel, right? That God's presence in some way comes down, not just on a place, but comes down on the people. All of a sudden, the people are the temple. In fact... Paul echoes this sentiment in 1 Corinthians 3, saying, Do you not know that you are God's temple, and God's Spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. See, the New Testament has this amazing kind of, kind of change, kind of turn, where God's special presence in this world is found in a person. It's not in a place. found in a person, Jesus, and then it's found in a people. That's you. You are the temple. You are now the tabernacle. You are now God's footstool in this world. 
This really shapes how Christians worship throughout history. Uh, in the beginning, early Christians were, were also Jewish. So they went to the temple and the tabernacle. Over time, uh, they can't do that anymore. Partially because this temple, the, the Solomon's temple, or uh, Ezra's temple that uh, Herod rebuilds, is destroyed in 70 AD. It's laid to waste, and there hasn't been a temple there since. But also, as the Christians start getting power, they, they, they meet in homes at first, and then they start creating worship spaces. And they model them after what you would think they would model them after. The temples and the tabernacles of the Old Testament. Although the Christians do some interesting things with that. First of all, the early Christians don't have cleansing pools and they don't have altars. Right? They don't follow the same kind of cleansing rituals. And they don't have altars because the belief is the altar is the place where the sacrifice happens. The cross already happened, which means we don't need any more sacrifices. The sacrifices are done. So you don't have altars, you don't have pools. Um, what you do have in, in Christian worship at that time uh, is high ceilings. High ceilings, so you're supposed to go in and feel the grandeur of the place. You have lots of stained glass or artwork. Uh, we miss this. Christians couldn't read. You didn't have a Bible. You, you take for granted the fact that you have multiple Bibles in your house. and You can get multiple translations. You can download them free on your phones. But you know, if you don't know how to read, and the only Bibles you can get are hand copied, they're very expensive. You don't have a Bible. And so throughout much of Christian history, your Bible was your church building. So you came in and you looked at paintings and you saw stained glass. And that's how you remembered the stories because you walked by them. So you had stained glass. Churches became often shaped in a cruciform. You can kind of see this in the black and white outline here. Churches became shaped like crosses. So there'd be a long part where people sat. Normally places to the side where people could sit. And then there'd be kind of this top area, which is where worship happened. Normally, that front would be in the east, representing sunrise. And so often you would walk past... And if you, grew up, if you grew up in a tradition like a Catholic church or even a Lutheran church, you probably remember a f- baptismal font in the back. So you would walk in and you'd remember that you came into this church through your baptism. It's always a reminder that you came in through your baptism and you would walk in and you'd always be walking towards the sunrise. And often in those churches, when the pastor would turn their back to the communion table, they would lift the host like this and it was supposed to be like a sunrise. Supposed to be like, yes... New life has come in Christ. And so that's where some of that symbol comes from. The, the ceiling was often meant to represent the inside of a ship. If you, if you looked at the bottom of a ship turned upside down, you would see that, that, that it had sort of that structure so that you would remember that you were a fisher of men. Also, the ceiling would often have an alpha and omega. Everybody see there's an alpha and omega, the beginning and end of the Greek alphabet. The Bible calls... Jesus, the Alpha and the Omega. And so often in our church, in churches, there would be uh, a beam on the top that looked like an A. And then below the A was meant to be an Omega. You see those little, see how the Omega has those little ends that flip out there? So often, often in churches, uh, and this is Grove City's chapel, okay, Grove City College Chapel. Uh, they have it really prominently, and there's a little doodad here. Uh, that represents the bottom of that omega. So it was an alpha and omega. So you always came to worship 
in this grand space, remembering that you were underneath of the Alpha and the Omega. The church didn't celebrate the Jewish festivals, but they did get their own festivals. And so they would have Lent and they would have Easter. And so they would often represent that with with cloths and with different ways of representing that in that space. Pews were a later development. Most of worship throughout most of history, you stood. Uh, My wife, before this service, said, well, maybe we should stand for the sermon today. Uh, And I defended you all, and I said no. Uh, But you did. You used to stand. The church was their Bible. The space added to the experience. And they were always supposed to remember not just that this space is holy, but that they were the temple. Now, you can click, Spike. Let's compare that with our worship space. And I think you're going to be amazed how much of our worship space actually represents this tradition. Okay, let's start in the back. Okay, first of all, there's this little wall back here, right? Little wall really makes not a lot of sense to just put your coats back on there. It doesn't help really with heat because it's only half of a wall. But it's supposed to represent this idea of the tabernacle, right? That you're coming into this area. That's that area out there. We don't have a baptismal font out there. Uh, that, that your hands in. But I'd like to sometime. I'd like to leave it out there for a couple months just so everybody gets to think about that. We have pews, right? Thank God. Uh, had a pews in the late developed much later, so you can thank God for that. Um, but they're on two sides. And that's not just for weddings, it's because there's not much of Christian history. Men sat on one side and women sat on the other, right? There's still this sense of division throughout. Uh, in fact, they, the, men, the women would often wear hats and the men would have to wear suits, right? Uh, some of these traditions uh, are around. We don't have stained glass. We have kind of a representa- representation of that, um, which is like, um, it's, that's like a distinctly 60s yellow. You know that? Um, like how many of you have seen shag carpet that that, that, that is yellow from the, uh, from the 60s? So that's a representation. We don't have stained glass. But we, like you notice, we do have banners. We do have symbols, we do have this sense of beauty and a reminder around us. Okay? The ceiling in this church definitely harkens back to Christian history. Because uh, I think this, this ceiling very clearly looks like a boat. Right? You think about a boat flipped over. That's what we have in these beams. And we actually, in this church, do have the Alpha and the Omega. Uh, but it's, it's more subtle. Okay? So if you... Um, so i got to leave this point here. If you follow the top line, you get an alpha. And some churches will have a beam going across here. We have fans, but that's okay. But look at the, look at the inside edge. It's not straight. It's round. Okay? So we have, if you follow this, we have still a hardening back to the omega in the alpha and the omega on our ceiling. Now, in a lot of churches, again, they'll have a little doodad here that represents the bottom of the omega. Uh, our, ours doesn't have that. This is a 1960s sort of modern uh, take on some of this stuff. But there you go. Alpha and the omega above the orange ceiling. Up here, we have some clear connections to the tabernacle and to the temple. First of all, we clearly have these three areas, right? There, and there's a little partition here to represent a separation uh, from the, this would be the holy area. And this up here is clearly the Holy of Holies. We have these walls kind of marking that off. Now, what was in the, uh, the holy area? What did I say? Two tables. It's always interesting to me. Most churches don't have two tables. They have one. We actually still have a good representation that there were two tables. And what was on those tables? First of all, the bread of the presence, 
right? There, and we don't always have the bread out, but we normally have the communion pieces out representing the communion, but it's the bread of the presence and a menorah, right? The candles with one in the middle and three on the outside. Now, I moved it. A bunch of people were bothered by it this morning when they came in. You don't think about this as a menorah because we often have it looking like that. But if I put it in a holy area and I straighten it out with just the, the one a little bit taller, you get to see that is clearly like a menorah. Like we have the right number of candles and everything. Um, we don't have incense burning. Uh, but we have two things, I think, take the place of that in this church. One is the Christ candle. One of the things we emphasize is the Christ candle, which is up in the Holy of Holies, uh, but still, I think, carries that weight of constant burning and incense. The other thing the book of Revelation talks about is that the prayers of the people are like the incense to God. And so we have this sense of, yeah, that's where that comes from. There's normally a curtain. There was a curtain. Remember the curtain that was ripped? That uh, Jesus' death that would separate this area. Very interesting in our church, and this is very unique to our church, is this curtain back here. Curtain behind, where the curtain doesn't section you off from anything except technically the, uh, the organ speakers back there, right? But you have full access to God in this church. There's no separations. It's a neat place for the curtain to be. And where the Ark of the Covenant would be, where the great symbol of the people and the symbol of their faith would be, we have a big cross. A cross with a big halo to represent the holiness of that space. Um, I don't know if you know this, but our church is in a cruciform shape. If you looked at it from the, from the top, it looks like a capital T. But if you think about this being the long part and this being kind of the head... Then you have the two arms that go out either of these doors. Now what they did was they put offices and rooms to fill this in. So it's a capital T. But still, harkens back to this um, crucifixion. Always interesting to me. I don't know if you've ever noticed this. We don't put the offering plates on the table. We put them over here. Why is that? Because this is not for us an altar. Okay, For us, the altar is the cross that was already paid for. So we don't, we don't lay offerings on an altar. We call this a table. And we put the offerings over here. And isn't it weird that I go get them? Anybody ever notice that? I go get the offering. And I put it back. Okay, That's hearkening back to this same tradition because only the priest could go into the holy area. So it was my, it's the priest's job to take the offerings of the people into God's presence. And so I still do that. Now, we aren't, we aren't real particular about that. Sometimes I'll have the ushers just bring it up. Um, but there you go. One last thing I want to bring up. Uh, there, well, there's this great little piece. I, I made some copies of it. It's the 1964-65. Right after the church was made, they made it, uh, a visitor's welcome about this building. And you'll find that they talk about some of this stuff. Here's something very unique to our church. Uh, you may not know this, but over here is supposed to be a baptismal fountain. There's supposed to be a fountain that water runs down along that wall and then go to the pool. It leaks. We never turn it on. There you go. Okay? And then we have a, 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 baptist, or a, a communion table over here. And then we have the cross at the center. And that is supposed to be, you can find that description in 1964. That's supposed to be a triangle. See that triangle? And the, the theory is that all the preaching in this church and all the teaching in this church and all the funerals in this church come out of that triangle. 
All of it come through the sacraments and are centered on the cross. That's our triangle. And it's meant to be this representation that everything we do as a church comes out of those things. I think this stuff's interesting, and I think most of us don't think about it at all, do we? Maybe you didn't even know some of the stuff that's around you. But this is your Bible. I mean, this was all the Bible that many Christians in their lives had was this space and these memories and these symbols, and they're meant to help you connect with God. So when you come to church, think about where you are. Because where you are is designed to help you find the one you came here to meet. Let's pray. Lord, help us to recognize the symbols around us that are meant to draw us closer to you. Help us to connect with you in a special way. In Jesus' name, amen.